Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A civil servant, said the British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin in 1925 does good by stealth and would blush to find it fame. A cabinet minister, he added, does good by publicity and would resign if he failed to secure it. It's easy to decide which is the more indispensable to a nation's welfare. A hundred years later, you would really struggle to find a senior minister speak so favourably of departmental officials. These days, civil servants find themselves dismissed as snivelling, office-shy, part of a nefarious Whitehall blob. Stealthy may still be used as a description, but rarely as a compliment. This past week or two, even more uncomplimentary phrases have been hurled about to describe the civil service during the Covid inquiry. So this is a WhatsApp sent by Dominic Cummings to Boris Johnson, where he says we've got big problems coming an office is terrifyingly shit. Do you agree with that? I might not quite use the same language, but, you know, generally, yes. I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who are dealing with this crisis extremely badly. Now, the relationship between officials and politicians has been becoming increasingly fraught over recent years. The Brexit vote opened up rarely seen divisions between ministers who supported the decision and high-ranking civil servants who thought it was a disaster. And the COVID pandemic shone a spotlight on the innermost workings of the Whitehall machine like nothing before. But something that has barely changed since Stanley Baldwin's day is that we rarely hear from civil servants in public at least. Officially, civil servants must have ministerial authorization for any contact with the media. So what would happen if you got a group of recently departed civil servants in a room and asked what they really think about the inner workings of government? What would they say about the ministers they worked for? Do they believe the Whitehall system is currently working? No. It could work better. Agree, exactly the same. I don't think Whitehall's working. Yeah, yeah, it's... For me, it's definitely working. Now, after all we've heard over the last weeks, months and even years about civil servants, I wanted to find out what they actually think. So I gathered these five all together in a single room 
to dish the dirt and reveal what really goes on. There is sometimes where you just get really frustrated that you can't cut through the shit. Civil servants often get blamed as the generators of bureaucracy, but actually it's all about the political system in practice. I have never seen anyone fired from the civil service, but I have seen people I don't think should have been promoted promoted. There were layers and layers of clearance. You have to clear with this person, then next level, then next level, then spads, then number 10. When we had a new government, they would say, well, everything that you've done over the last two years in policy, we'll just scrap that, we'll start again. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm hosting a very special focus group for you to listen into of ex-civil servants lifting the lid on what life as a government official is really all about. So I'm Holly Williamson. I did about seven years in DEFRA, um, the Home Office and DWP Bays, which turned into Desnes. I'm Amy Gandon and I worked for five years in five departments. <laughs> we'll talk about churn later, I'm sure. I'm Katie Heil and I worked at the Treasury for three years. I'm Tom Housden. I uh, worked in the Ministry of Defence uh, and the Home Office and then a brief secondment to number 10. My name's Ashley Sawyer. I did 30 years in the Department for Work of Pensions. I'd like to say it was a calling, but the real reason is that they were the first company that offered me a job that didn't require me to cut my hair. Our panellists all worked in departmental head offices across Whitehall. They all had differing responsibilities and seniority, but they all have one thing in common. They've all recently left the civil service. So I left the civil service in June 2022. And to put it bluntly, I just spectacularly burnt out. Um, I worked on the COVID response, obviously all kind of reliving that a bit through the COVID inquiry at the moment. But I went into the civil service to make a difference. And I felt that I couldn't make any difference, um, despite the fact that I was, you know, running around frantically working, you know, in the COVID uh, response maybe 14 to 16 hour days and yet feeling like it was contributing to at least nothing that felt really kind of positive in the way that I imagined. Why didn't it? The bureaucratic system of the civil service is a very hungry beast. It's hungry for pieces of paper. It's hungry for meetings. And, you know, especially in an environment where relationships with ministers aren't actually as trusting as they have been in previous times or with particular personalities, a lot more of that effort goes into pleasing ministers in this quite performative way. So I did four years in total in private office. Private secretaries basically keep the information, the advice, the support coming through for secretaries of states and ministers and spads um, so that they can make effective decisions as and when they need to make them. Um, So when I left private office and went back into departments, I found that adjustment quite difficult. Uh, Why why did you find it difficult? The pace. So obviously when you're in private office, you work really, mind the pun, but in the thick of it and you feel like really involved and really kind of enabled. But then you kind of step away from that and you you go back into the department and you feel it's a little bit harder to break through. It's a bit harder to feel listened to. So that combined with this push on the narrative that this we are the blob and that, you know, we are ineffective, we're not good, we're, we're terrible, we're awful people, coinciding at the same time, I think, meant that I needed a change. I'd had enough. I'd, I'd really, 
I think COVID put put the nail in the coffin, really. Um, spending two years at home uh, and just, I was just tired, just tired of everything. You're having the same conversations with the same people year after year. And it got, it just got too much. And I thought, I, I, I need to leave. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I retired. I've done six years and you kind of, the civil service works in cycles. Um, there's obviously budget, autumn statement. Obviously, we have loads of different prime ministers. So you get a new different agenda coming through. You feel like you're doing the same thing the next year, um, especially working in comms. You're either re-announcing a policy that's already been announced you're kind of boxing it up into something shiny and new and putting a ribbon on it um or you're finding money down the back of a sofa that's not been spent that year and presenting it as a brilliant new policy in policy it changes every time there's a change of government they would say well everything that you've done over the last two years in policy we'll just scrap that and we'll start again with what the new government has said so that was a difficult time when you would come in on Monday morning and everything you've worked on was just put in a bin and you have a blank sheet of paper and you've got to start again. Sounds really frustrating. That was hard. You have a micro version of that as well when you have a new minister. Mm-hmm. So you have like the point of a new minister, so it's like poof, off everything you're kind of, not completely, but you have to reset the whole sort of relationship mm-hmm. and the agenda a bit. And bring them up to speed, which is also a job in itself, because they'll come in with lots of new ideas for officials to say, you know, we've tried that before and it really doesn't work because of X, Y, Z reason for them to ask you to try it again and for it to not, lo and behold, work. That was something I wanted to ask, actually. When you sort of give a minister advice, if if they ask you to do something, can you just say no? Can you say, that's a really crap idea, we've tried that? Democratically speaking, no, you can't say no. Um... You can say, there's a subtle difference, you said, can you say that's a really bad idea? Yes, you can say that. Um, but I guess it's the, the idea is that you're meant to be able to give evidence impartially based on what are the benefits, what are the risks, what are the costs, um, you know, what's the value for the taxpayer? Um, and the minister can, even if you say that's a bad idea, it's the minister's fully within their rights. They are the person with a democratic mandate to say, I'm going to do it anyway. And this is where your internal relationships as a policy advisor come into play because if if that happened you would go to the private office you would go to to holly and out of the minister's ear you'd say this is rubbish you do not want to do that you need to tell your minister to do this you would then go to your senior civil servant and you need to say you need to not do you know you need to steer the minister away from this so you as a as a junior policy advisor need to make use of the people that you know within your remit to steer a minister away from what they think they they want i think the best civil servants that i've seen do it are the ones that a have that really good relationship but aren't afraid to give that frank advice and a, you've got to read the room with certain ministers some ministers absolutely hate being told straight that this is not a great idea but some really appreciate it as long as you kind of have that, okay, we'll go away and work up a couple of different other options that may get to the end of the road that you want to get to, but it's going to kind of be in a slightly different direction. And one of the things that civil servants have been accused of recently is getting in the way of what ministers want and the civil service has been seen as politicised. This idea that there's kind of a core of the civil service, this this kind of like 
woke obstructive being is just not true is it's just a it's a way of moving away from kind of issues that may be difficult to handle for a department or they may not be getting their own way with a policy because they're getting kind of outside challenge there's thousands of civil servants every day who are working really hard to deliver on that government's mandate and there's not this core of of wokery yeah (laughs) none of you have seen it not at all no i mean in in every line of work there are people that are kind of by default they do their nine to five they do the bare minimum and they want to clock off that is not exclusive to the civil service um i i think it's really really easy to blame a bunch of people that can't actually stand up for themselves because we are largely faceless um you know we do have our senior civil servants that represent us but the majority of us we can't defend ourselves so what a better way to cover up your own sort of mistakes or mishandlings or whatever it might be by blaming a bunch of people that actually can't come out and sort of say, you know, we did tell you this and you didn't listen. So that's why that happened. And and, and do you feel like those sort of briefings, do you feel like those affected the relationships between civil servants and ministers? I think a lot of um, officials probably found it really hard to then go and sit in front of a person that had publicly bashed them. Um I mean, there were times when it was quite difficult to sit there and to know how they felt about you and not be able to say anything or do anything about it. It might be worth me saying at this stage that I recently published a report which was based on the anonymous testimony of 50 civil servants. Lots of them spoke about the kind of criticism in the media, feeling that, you know, they were being denigrated and therefore were being less valued and almost feeling embarrassed sometimes when they went to kind of dinner parties or drinks and introduced themselves as a civil servant, was sort of tipping that quite delicate balance, you know, away from it feeling like a rational calculation to be a civil servant, which I think is, you know, it's a real shame. It's really sad. But it's also, I think, really self-defeating on the part of those politicians who, you know, are bashing Mm. civil servants in order to try and coax them into performing better because actually lots of them were leaving. Holly, you said the pace was slow. And Ashley, you were talking about the fact that a lot of the work you do goes in the bin when there's a new government. Do you think that part of the view of the civil service being a blob might come from the fact that there's a lot of bureaucracy and not that much work comes out of it? I think that slow by kind of private office standards means slowing down. That doesn't mean that we don't have to do the due diligence that we have to do when we are delivering and making the decisions that we are making and advising ministers on. So even though it can look like we are being bureaucratic and at times probably are, there's reason for why we are doing what we are doing. I think sometimes the bureaucracy can get frustrating. There is sometimes where you do just get really frustrated that you can't cut through the shit. Yeah. You've you've got a clear direction from your minister to go and deliver something, but you have to go to four different people uh, within the department. Then you have to go to cabinet office possibly, and then you have to go to number 10 to get that signed off. And when you've got a secretary of state standing next to you saying, yeah. why can't you just do this? That's when they get frustrated. And I don't think they may not appreciate the level of due diligence and process that has to happen for it to be delivered. Um, And I think that's sometimes where the ministerial civil servant frustration can manifest. One of the things I noticed when I came out of journalism was I I was working on the 6 and 10 o'clock news and, um, you know, we would have to get a programme done by 6 o'clock because it's got to go on air. And I come into the civil service and, you know, there were layers and layers of clearance. You have to clear with this person, then next level, then next level, then SPADS, then number 10... 
lots of the kind of bureaucratic demands around writing a briefing for a minister or parliamentary questions times a thousand is because politicians want to look good. Right. So I think civil servants often get blamed as the generators of bureaucracy, but actually it's all about the political system practice. I'm here to give a, an unreserved apology today. And, and I am sorry if I have upset people in any way whatsoever. In 2020, Priti Patel was found to have broken the ministerial code because of her treatment of officials in the Home Office. Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister, rejected the findings and backed her to continue as Home Secretary. Sky News understands Mr Johnson urged the senior civil servant who conducted the bullying inquiry, Sir Alex Allen, to tone down his findings. And earlier this year, then-Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dominic Raab quit after he was found to have been unreasonably and persistently aggressive towards government officials. It's all over for Dominic Raab, the latest senior figure ousted from Rishi Sunak's government amid a scandal of his own making. We kind of touched on the relationship between civil servants and ministers, but there obviously have been things that we've heard about Dominic Raab, Priti Patel, of them treating civil servants badly. And I just wanted to ask whether you guys had ever seen difficult behaviour from ministers when you were in the civil service. So I think like any workplace, um, you have your characters. And I think that there are many ministers who are lovable and you do feel like a certain element of affection towards them almost. And there are some really difficult characters too. I think that like anywhere, your boss can sometimes be mean and be challenging. But yes, there are definitely some characters um, and there have been certainly some experiences that have been quite challenging and quite difficult to manage as a professional. I think because the civil service is quite permanent in the people that work in it and ministers are kind of come and go, It you do have to get used to different characters very quickly. Um some people don't get used to characters very quickly and that's where there can be um, real difficulties in those relationships with ministers and civil servants. If you loved your minister before and they did everything in the exact way that you loved it and then someone's come in and they've shaken the apple cart, that may get you back up. I think in private office they hire a particular type of character and you look for somebody that is, like you say, adaptable, somebody that is going to be able to deal with really difficult characters and be put sometimes in quite difficult positions. You are there to protect them just as much as you are to protect the ministers from themselves sometimes. And that puts you in the firing line. So, you know, you do have to deal with that quite calmly. You have to maintain your professionalism no matter what. But yeah, it can be difficult to be that everything to everyone at times. I mean, I've, I've been shouted at. I've been told my submission's rubbish. But they're not, in, in, in the, the way I look at it, they're not talking to you. They're talking to an official. You're the 10th person that day that's been in with a submission that they've had two minutes to read and their job is very difficult. So I need to not take it personally because I, I only see them... Once every three weeks, every time I'd, I'd send up a new paper or a new submission, um, and they don't know who I am, they don't know anything about me. So, it, it yes, it, it's a fine line. We've heard horror stories of ministers going over the top, 
but thankfully that's very few and far between. I mean, obviously you were there for a long time, but maybe if it was someone a bit younger who was a bit more unsure of their position, they would have minded and would have felt unsure giving that advice. So your manager and your your senior civil servants, you can always ask them to come to those meetings with you. And it is very intimidating for the first time to go in and see a minister and I'm presenting this to them. And you're shaking in your boots. You you really are. Um, But the more you get used to it, the more you get used to them, then you're okay with it. Yeah, I mean, especially, I guess it's intimidating if you're shouted at. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't happen often. I equally feel as well that that's obviously a big role of a private secretary is to manage that. Like, the we you always give, like, the examples of the actual things that you do, but some of that softer stuff, you know, that, right, he's in a bit of a bad mood. Um, I wouldn't bring up this. I wouldn't bring up that. Really do stay away from that. And also, um, you know... Bring your bring your senior official because he can help or whatever it might be. That kind of tip bit yeah. is yeah. what we're there for. That hand holding of everybody so that it doesn't escalate into into kind of an argument. I think ultimately ministers should be motivated by like what is going to have the best and biggest impact for the public. In the research that I've done recently, people were worried about being criticised by by ministers. You know there was. A sort of reluctance to share negative information um, or, you know, a desire to kind of massage things to make it seem more positive because there was a grumpy minister on the other end of the submission. So I think, you know, ministers, it, they are duty bound for the public to create a space where advisors can give them full and frank advice um, and to not be scary, basically, in order in order to make that happen. Did you ever do that, Tom? I know you worked in comms, so did you ever sort of make something seem better than it was and worry about giving someone advice if they were going to be annoyed about it? Um, yeah, it was always difficult at 10.30 when the front pages drop and um, <laughs> you know you've got five front pages of shit and you're having to WhatsApp them through to the Secretary of State. This is where you kind of have to be a bit of a problem solver. You can deliver bad news but then you have to say, look, how are we going to move on from this? What's plan of action tonight into the morning? You can't just massage bad news and say, here it is, and that's that's it, that's bad. You've got to be a bit more um, forward thinking. And as politics has become increasingly sort of uh, insane, I suppose, is the <laughs> best way of saying that. What kind of bearing did that have on all of your jobs? One of my participants to the research spoke about addiction to COBRA, that ministers have almost, COBRA referring to the kind of emergency room, cabinet office briefing room A, that they've kind of got used to being able to turn around a decision in a day and they quite like it. And they're a bit hooked, actually. <laughs> and I think there's a there's a realisation, actually, that for particularly like long-term systemic issues, making a decision and implementing it within three hours, like you might for like a lockdown, is not necessarily a desirable state of affairs. I think... Brexit is probably when it started to go insane. Um, and In the civil service or just in... Politics country? in general and it, the implications that had for the civil service. I don't know if anyone's watched the BBC State of Chaos um, thing with Coonsberg and um, Helen McNamara said, like, we collectively lost our minds, which I think is the perfect way in which uh, to de- in how to describe what Westminster was like from 2016 onwards. And I remember being on foreign trips with with ministers and they'd have to fly back to vote to then fly back to the foreign trip. And you're kind of conducting massive international meetings, but you've got to go and vote on a amendment to a bill because Theresa May's 
stuffed up a majority and she needs to get it through. So that is kind of when the collective chaos implicates day-to-day government business. Not for the better, probably. Coming up, our panel's reaction to the COVID inquiry. If the Cabinet Office was being terrifyingly shit, it's also perhaps because the Cabinet Office might not have been set up to succeed. And whether anyone ever actually gets sacked from the civil service. If I was on a contract, I may have to work a bit harder to prove myself. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In case you hadn't noticed, Dominic Cummings has a lot to say. The Prime Minister would make a decision about something. Some element of the system, uh, often in the Cabinet Office, would not like what had been agreed. And in the best Sir Humphrey uh, Yesminster style, Um, They would wait for uh, me and other people to not be around the Prime Minister and they would pop in to see the Prime Minister and say, Dear Prime Minister, I think that this decision really wasn't the best idea. Very brave Prime Minister. Perhaps you should uh, um, uh, uh, trolley on it. It wasn't just that he called the Cabinet Office response to Covid terrifyingly shit. Dominic Cummings' WhatsApps to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson also lamented the working hours of civil servants, saying that some had not done the work and would not work weekends. Amy, can I just ask you about that? Because I know you did work in the Cabinet Office. Do you think that's an unfair characterisation? I think he's actually referring to probably the handful of very senior officials that would actually be exposed to Dominic Cummings on a day-to-day basis. One. Two, I think there's sometimes this problem amongst you know, kind of critics of the civil service like Dominic Cummings, where they create a polarity where it's like the civil servants or this bit of government is rubbish without actually realising that there are huge interdependencies between ministers and the political setup and the departments and uh, the officials there. So if the cabinet office was being terrifyingly shit, it's also perhaps because the cabinet office might not have been being set up to succeed, for example, by having very clear political direction. So I don't think it's actually very helpful to play the blame game in something as complex as the COVID inquiry and trying to unpick what happened there. And for people like Dominic Cummings, who were in very powerful positions at that time, to kind of actually lean into the shared ownership of those problems rather than use expletives about 
bits of government that they don't actually properly understand, I would say. And I would just say, that, you know, the same sort of thing, and probably happened in other departments as well, would happen at the Treasury and that people would blame the Treasury because they weren't releasing the money. You know, there's lots of stories behind that, which is often quite difficult to represent by just going, oh, well, this is the expletive. Mm. <laughs> Do you guys remember, I know that you were kind of both there in that time, um, but do you remember things being a bit slow or difficult during that time? There was kind of a, a lack of clear direction. I would, I would say it's probably uncontroversial to say, and there was chopping and changing of political direction, which then I think has huge knock-on effects in terms of how decisively civil servants can act. Civil servants wait faithfully for the democratically elected people to give them direction. So if they're slow, it also might be because ministers are not kind of giving them the direction and to be able to act confidently with an aligned cabinet saying exactly the same thing confidently so that you can be speedy in what you're doing and what you're implementing. I think that it also then filters down into the departments themselves. So if you've got um, ministers and you've got secretaries of state that are bickering, the departments themselves, the officials that are heads of the different teams that come together to form an opinion but look at it from slightly nuanced perspectives also struggle to form one unified position because their principles are telling them to deliver something in a particular way. So it, it really does filter right down to the very bottom of how we do policy. Stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. When COVID hit in March 2020, civil servants, like the rest of the country, started working from home. But in September of that year, Permanent secretaries were told they needed to get 80% of their staff back into departments by the end of the month. This plan was later abandoned as infection levels rose, but the narrative and the intention remained, with then-ministers like Jacob Rees-Mogg hell-bent on getting civil servants back to their desks. People need to be in the office and to do their jobs properly. There are some jobs that can be done perfectly well from home. If you're a novelist, you can probably work very well at home. I know that the government hate it, that the civil service have the audacity to work from home. But actually, what I think it taught many civil servants and many teams and many leaders in the civil service is things will get done if people work from home. Like, it is OK. And civil servants will still deliver what they need to deliver. And we ha we actually can work in a different way. We can use teams. We don't have to be face to face in a meeting room to do that. That had a really positive effect on the churn of the civil servants' work. Ashley, can I just bring you in here? Because I know that one of the reasons you said you wanted to leave the civil service was the working from home. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it quite hard at the beginning because I live on my own with my, my lovely cat. Um, and it was, I, I, I missed that, that social environment for a year, two years, whatever it was. Um, yeah, you'd set up quizzes on Teams or zoom but it wasn't the same i think it, it may have just been because of the nature of, of my role running the news desk which is in the home office a massive reactive beast that takes all of the incoming calls from from journals get 100 a day for us to be able to get up from our desk run around the department saying mm -hmm. i've just had this call or i've got this line on a literally a piece of paper to the policy official that i've built that good relationship with i know they're sitting on the third floor i can put it in front of them get it signed off get that away make sure that we are delivering a press office functioning effectively that was invaluable having people there so do you think jacob Rees-Mogg might have a point no i think there needs to be a balance but i think both views are now incredibly entrenched that there's no kind of 
bit in the middle where, yeah, there is real value of having people in a room face-to-face doing stuff. And it's also the softer skills, right? Um, a lot of people, that younger people in my team when they joined the civil service through COVID, they'd never met their colleagues. It's in the margins of meetings. That's when you get the real insight about certain ministers or you're, you're prepping to go in to speak to a span and be like, look, they really like it being presented in this way. So don't talk too long on that. Go Go a bit harder on that. You lose all of that when you log onto a team call and you've got someone senior there and someone presenting. Something that came up again and again when I was researching this episode was the hiring, firing and promotions in the civil service compared to the private sector. One ex-civil servant told me that when she joined, she was immediately informed by colleagues that she would be able to coast because no one ever gets sacked from the civil service. So she is obviously not here to articulate that point, but is that something that any of the rest of you heard? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great positives is that it's a really, like, it's generally civil servants are lovely people. Um, They're really enthusiastic. They're really fun to be around. I do think there is a culture of kind of maybe even excess politeness in the civil service because you know and the, you know the, the values are fantastic about inclusivity and and you know support um and there's Would lots of emphasis on on well-being wokeness um what is wokeness that's, yeah, that's, what, yeah like I, I think we're in a very sad place if being nice to one another is woke <laughs> but um it's a bit of people pleasing exactly well. and, yeah. and and i think that you know, having been uh, out of the civil service for a while, you, you realise in, in any normal working culture, you do need to have incentives to perform highly. Um, and that does mean giving people difficult feedback sometimes. It does also mean sometimes saying, actually, I don't think this is the right work for you. Um, and, you know, I think we all need to be motivated by delivering for the public and the public deserve, like, you know, the pe- people to be, you know, shit hot. In one of the departments yeah. I worked in, we did let people go because we, as a decision to reshape um, the directorate that I was in, um, some of the roles were then um, deemed surplus and there was a five roles, say, for seven people. And the two that weren't in the top five didn't stay within the directorate. There was obviously a kind of an onus on the on our team to help them find roles that are better suited to them elsewhere within the civil service. So hang on, they 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 weren't they weren't actually fired. They were just given a different job in the civil service. No, not necessarily. So, I th- there there was clear points where there was you have to within X amount of time do this within X amount of time. Um, then, if nothing happens, then yeah, we've almost certainly all seen though when someone isn't quite the right fit for the job, the incentive because also the HR processes in in government are really kind of cumbersome. And you have to, for very good reason, go through quite a lot of processes to actually performance manage someone out of their role, that it's much easier and quicker for you to move them on, even to promote them somewhere else, encourage them, support them to get a promotion somewhere else, than to actually you know, find them a, a job that they might be better suited to out, outside of the civil service. I have never seen anyone fired from the civil service, but I have seen people I don't think should have been promoted, promoted in the civil service. So I, I really do think that resourcing recruitment and the way that we do it needs to be reviewed. It is virtually impossible unless you do something really wrong. It's incredibly difficult to get rid of you. So I would get rid of that permanency and put people on three-year, five-year contracts, whatever it is. The one thing that really kept me in the civil service was I knew I wasn't going to lose my job. 
I knew I bought a house. I can pay the mortgage every month because I'm not going to lose my job. Now, if I was on a contract, I may have to work a bit harder to to prove myself because when when the end of the contract comes up, I'm just going to be let go for no reason. And, and, and do you think the civil service should be smaller? I think the civil service could be smaller, but that needs to be accompanied by a real commitment to prioritisation. It would take ministers being happy to disappoint constituents and not not be able to do everything and have a laser-like focus on a smaller range of priorities. Head office could get smaller. Do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely. I think so. By how much, percentage-wise? 50%? No, 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 no. 25 no. Again, it all depends, as, as, as you say, on what you want delivering or, or what do you consider to be a priority to be delivered. I've worked on policies that I've thought, why are we doing that? And I've worked on policies that really needed to get through Parliament. So, yes, I, I think if the government of the day is willing to deliver less, then, yes, you could get rid of the people in head office. Something you hear when you speak to civil servants about getting into the civil service or getting promoted within it is that there is a formula to doing well in interviews. Learn the formula and you will succeed, they say. There is a, there there is is a, a formula. There's a, there's there's a way a in which you do civil service interviews. <laughs> OK, tell um, me about it. <laughs> which, they're all competency-based. Um, so if you have, you know there's you get in advance what competencies they're going to ask you about. You prepare three or four different anecdotes um, of how you've delivered wonderfully for the British people on each of those competencies. And you use the STAR acronym. Correct. Situation, Um, task, action, result. uh, And then um, you do it that way. But it depends on where it is because people talk, right, especially in comms where you work so closely with other departments on issues that interlap often. So you know who are the good people. Private office talk with their opposite numbers. And if you are hiring, then you kind of have an idea. I've done a lot of interviewing. And I did one particular um, promotion board. And three people from the same office came in and took credit for the same piece of work. (laughs) That's so awkward. You're there in front of someone for half an hour. If you see your mate do a good piece of work, there is no reason why, if you can't tell that good story, you can say that, because you're never going to see that interviewer again. It's not your boss for promotion purposes. You're not appraised on a monthly, weekly basis. It's not anything to do with your boss now. It's you write a paper, you go in front of a board, you tell a story. So if you can do that well, then good luck to you. As we left the studio, one of the participants said she was surprised by how positive everyone had been. I thought about this a lot afterwards. Because although they were all positive about the institution itself, they were all really clear about the need for change and reform and painted a picture to me of a place that was bloated in the wrong places and rapidly losing talent it couldn't afford to lose. You constantly hear from certain ministers and from certain parts of the press a refrain about the civil service, about a blob that doesn't want reform. But spending an hour with five ex-civil servants, they all had ideas for change within. And the ideas they had make it smaller, 
Improve talent management. Make it harder to coast. Would actually not seem out of place in a Dominic Cummings blog. So, maybe, to repair the relationship between ministers and civil servants, they should just sit down and have a chat. It might surprise everyone how much they all agree. Thanks for listening to this episode of Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, maybe even leave us a nice review. My Twitter handle, sorry, X, is at Agnes Chambray. Uh, Please feel free to tweet the episode too. Our producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions here at Politico. My executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. I'll be back next week. See you then. 